This is India Bastian with Aubrey Calvin, and together we co-host Southern Queries, a podcast where we explore being part of the LGBTQ community in the South. We have some deep conversations, explore some great topics, interview some interesting folk about what it's like being queer in the South. Welcome to Southern Queries. This is a show where we explore the LGBT community, individual experience, and personal identities. Some terminology that might be different or new to you. This is part of what we are exploring here through our conversations. Listen with an open heart and we welcome any polite and respectful engagement. And we encourage you to continue these conversations in your life and your community. So hello and welcome to Southern Queries, a show examining the queer life in the south well today we're here to <laughs> I have to cheer. Uh, today, today we're going to be interviewing my co-founder and co-host and all-around superstar india hello so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself including uh how you pronounce your name and your pronouns Um, So my name is India Bastien. Uh, My last name is French, so I say it in a Spanish accent because my dad's from Mexico, just to make it extra complicated. And my pronouns are she, her, hers. Uh, Welcome to the show that you founded. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here, and I need to be here since I'm (laughs) co-hosting. We really can't do the show without you, so we're glad to have you on as our first guest. Well, second. Technically, you were the first guest. Oh, yes, but (laughs) we're probably going to release this one first, so we'll see. We'll make it all one long four-hour conversation. It's going to be endless. So let's get to know India. Why do you want to do this podcast? Why is this topic interesting to you? Gosh, how is it not interesting to me? Um, I think it's so important to get to know your community and where you're from and where you're living. And I am from further south, as one would say, um, aka across the border. I'm from Mexico and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia about five years ago. And this Southern U.S. is so different compared to other places that I've been to in the U.S. And my coming out in the South was so fascinating. I just had so many questions, so many great conversations, and I knew that I wanted to have a podcast about it, mostly because a lot of the other podcasts or information that I would get out there were from bigger metropolitan cities like San Francisco or New York or even LA. And the South has so many levels and intricacies and uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but like nuances to it that I think it's just a great topic. And it's really hard to be LGBTQ in the South. And it's also really fascinating and embracing and lovely depending on your experience but there's so much you know just a position between negative and positive that I can geek out over all the southern gayness for days (laughs) yes (laughs) 
So that's my reasoning. Um, because I well, am gay and I a better gay rodeo than in the South. That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. And some of the best chefs, I tell you. It's so Okay. So you said you were from Mexico and then moved to Atlanta. What was life like in Mexico? Oh, Mexico. So. And, and more specifically, where in Mexico are you from? Because I think, and I've, I'm, I lived in Japan briefly as an Air Force kid, but for the most part, I've lived in the continental United States. And I can tell you, Americans have no sense of where Mexico is in terms of the different places. All we think is it's below us <laughs> geographically. So where are you from in, in Mexico? <laughs> so, um, yes, the, great question. Um, so if you looked at Mexico on a map, it kind of looks like a high heel. It has a little skinny thing, mm -hmm. which is Baja California, and then it kind of curves upwards. Um, and Mexico City is a lot further south than people realize. Um, it's about a, gosh, I don't know. I want to say maybe a 40 hour drive um, to the border. If you drove from the border directly to Mexico oh, City. It's a long, um, it's and my long. hometown is north of Mexico City. So we're about four hours north of Mexico City. And I'm from the state called Guanajuato. And the hometown is called San Miguel de Allende. Um, which if you translated it, it was, it used to be called San Miguel Arcangel, which is Archangel. Um, my hometown is known for being the birthplace of our independence. Um, it is also known to be uh, the best city in the world, according to Condenast Traveler, um, both 2000. 2013 and 2015. We've won it like three different times. Um, it's a oh, world wow. UNESCO heritage site. Um, it's pretty much untouched since the 1400s and everything looks like it's out of like an old movie. Cobblestone roads, all the walls are different colors of the rainbow. You can't have neon signs in the town. It's also a huge expat community. And what I mean by expats is expatriates from the US and around the world. So people from okay. France, Italy, um, Germany, all come and quote unquote retire into this town. And after, San Miguel de Allende. Yeah, um, lots of what we call gringos, um, older Americans who have retired. I know that I've seen every time you go back, you post these beautiful pictures on your Facebook and I get jealous. I'm like, this is so beautiful. This is the most beautiful city ever. And I want to go there so badly. So we need to make this show last post COVID <laughs> so we can go do an episode down there. It's my reason because it looks gorgeous. Absolutely it gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And it's in the middle of the mountains. It's pretty, um, what's the word, like isolated from other bigger cities. So it's very untouched. It feels very small, metropolitan city. I still call it a town because it's always a town in my head. But every time I go back, I'm like, oh, God, it's getting huge. Um, <laughs> like we got our first Starbucks back in 2000. Uh, I want to say 12. We protested oh, wow. it vehemently. It was a big deal. Um, but you would never know where the Starbucks is because there isn't like a giant neon sign. Like it's hard to find things. Like I didn't grow up, 
like we used to go to a neighboring city called Querétaro, which is about 30 minutes south from my hometown. And it was a big deal. My mom would take us to get Burger King. It was like a special occasion only on birthdays. But that was my only experience with like fast food. Otherwise, there wasn't any in my hometown when I was growing up. You have a better for it, actually. (laughs) Yeah, probably. And then how did you end up from there in Atlanta? Well, What happened to make that move? Well, before I dive into that, I did want to add that what makes San Miguel so special and what makes my background so strange and unique is I was raised by an American mother, Mexican dad, and so I had both cultures at the same time kind of completely embedded. Um, ditto same languages. Uh, I don't think I have an accent in English. Every once in a while I'll say something oddly, but bilingual brain. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of cultural things that I get in the U.S. And there's some things that like go above my head that I'm just like, wait, what? I don't know who the Brady Bunch is. I know now. I didn't before. <laughs> now you know. You didn't before. You didn't. You mean you didn't know our '60s and '70s pop culture from before when either of us were born? How dare you? Well, How just dare you not know that? <laughs> well, just to add on to that, I also was homeschooled and um, grew up without a TV. So you know, just to <laughs> complicate it even more. <laughs> but I grew up going to camp in the states and. Um, surrounded by Americans, but also surrounded by Mexicans and going to school in Mexico as well. So cross-cultural, bilingual, bicultural, gay chick over here. (laughs) Well, it puts you at the intersection of a lot of things, doesn't it? Too many things. From a cultural (laughs) standpoint, geographical, you're right there at the intersection of so many of the things that we want to talk about. I know. It's going to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then to answer your second question, how did I end up in Atlanta, Georgia, was I didn't even know where Atlanta, Georgia was on a map. I'd never heard of it. I didn't even realize how friendly and wonderful it can be. And that story is a lot more complicated to answer, but the gist of it is I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to rejoin, or I guess join the film industry. Because at the time, um, I was co-owner of a production house, and um, the life that I wanted to have wasn't going to happen with the income that I was getting in Mexico. So I was like, I guess it's time for me to make dollars in the U.S., so I moved. And Atlanta, Georgia was where everything was being filmed. Um, It was after the bathroom bill had gone through in North Carolina um, for uh, the not-friendly trans bathroom bill, as some people were calling it. And so the production companies, like big ones like Lionsgate and uh, Dreamweaver, Dream. Dreamweaver? That's not what it's called. Dreamworks. Dreamworks. No. Thank you. Dreamworks. Um, all moved to Atlanta, Georgia, because Georgia was giving tax incentives. So The Walking Dead, Sleepy Hollow, all the Marvel movies were being filmed in Atlanta. So I was like, I guess this is where we're moving to. So picked up my life, didn't know anyone there, didn't know where Atlanta was on a map, and there I was. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Peach State. Yep. 
And then you mentioned, and I don't want to identify for you, how do you identify in terms of being a part of the LGBTQ plus community? So um, a lot like your answer, it really depends on who I'm talking to. But if I were to announce myself to the world, for me, I identify as a queer femme lesbian. If I'm talking to pretty much anyone here in Texas, I usually just say gay because um, you can see people literally clutching their pearls if I say the word lesbian. Oh, lesbian. <laughs> it like freaks people out. <laughs> and to add the queer femme aspect to it, I like the conversation goes a lot more in depth than I think people want to initially. If I'm talking to other fellow LGBTQ people who are unfamiliar with why I use the word queer or femme, I have the best conversations. Um, so I can keep going. <laughs> so you do. Well, so you, you led there and then you stopped. Well, you I can talk for hours. <laughs> so the reason why I use queer, I know that for older generation, LGBTQ identifying people, the word queer can be really triggering. Um, however, the word queer for me felt very empowering and also very true because I used to be married to a man. He was a lovely man. Um, he and I are still very good friends and, um, Nick really helped my queer self come out of the closet. And it, if it weren't for him, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And queer is more encompassing of an umbrella. I learned quite quickly that lesbian can be, be very exclusionary. Um, it doesn't have to be, but it can be. Um, a lot of the culture of lesbian culture excludes non-binary people and trans people, and I didn't want to close that door um, with my partners. So I liked carrying the word queer because it's more inviting and open. I also found it to be general, like in this generation, we're claiming it as our own. So mm -hmm. it felt powerful to me um, to add that label. And then I also encountered the word femme. And um, I feel like people automatically labeled me as femme just based on what I was wearing, what I looked like, and my style preferences. But I met some amazing people in Atlanta who introduced me to the femme mafia. And after learning the different history of like butch lesbians versus family lesbians and that deeper culture of lesbianism of having more masculine of center versus more feminine of center I was fascinated and there's a lot of power in being femme not for the reasons what society claims them to be I don't wear high heels for men I wear them for me I don't wear lipstick because that's what society tells me to. I wear it because it makes me feel powerful. So claiming the word femme to me has been even more empowering than queer. And I cannot get over the word lesbian because I think it's so dirty, good, rich, and raunchy, and awesome all at the same time. All in one. <laughs> it's everything. 
<laughs> it's all the things. And I actually think it's really important to make people uncomfortable with that word. Um, because we're Lesbian. never going to normalize it if people mm. don't hear it enough. Wait, uncomfortable with lesbian or uncomfortable with queer? Lesbian. Or femme. Lesbian. Okay. I, I just want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I because also... For years, it really was gay as the all-encompassing term, which is so limiting. And yes. Yeah. I mean, I love the history of the word gay, but I also know that the word lesbian has so much power as well. And um, I did encounter the word dyke. And I do, and I have heard how it's used incredibly derogatory, but meeting the dykes on bikes and finding dyke culture has also been fascinating to me. And it's going on dyke marches. It's very empowering and really, um, it's almost like a warrior move. Like I pull out my dyke self when I know that I'm going to have to defend myself or I'm going to ride on a bike. <laughs> when you're going to ride on a bike. <laughs> and I mean bike as in motorcycle. I don't know. I, I, yes. I love it. <laughs> I don't think I've been on the back of a motorcycle in years. I don't think I've been on a motorcycle at all in at least a decade. So. Yeah, they're so much fun and they're sexy. I'm into it. <laughs> Anyway, I just uh, word vomited so you, a lot. You say you, what's that? I just word vomited What's a that? lot. <laughs> Go that ahead. Fine. So you said you were married to a man. Mm-hmm. When did you first started? To, when did you first start to realize you were queer? Or so I knew. When I... did you start having those ideas? Oh, I knew. I knew. Not ideas. Ideas is a bad word. When did you know? <laughs> when I was five. Um, I knew that I was queer when I was five. I just didn't have the language for it. Um, I knew uh, that I was different, um, especially when I started going to private school. Um, I guess they call it primary school in Mexico, and here they call it middle school. Elementary school, sorry. It's usually elementary, like... Yeah, for the under ten kind of thing. 10 yeah, under. A, a lot of my friends and or my classmates they wanted to play these dumb games like go chase the boys and kiss them on the cheek, and the boys would be like, "Ew, cooties!" And I just stood there and I said, "Why would I want to do that? Why can't we play kiss the girls?" <laughs> but I also didn't really think about love in terms of gender um, as a small child and I didn't know that there was words like that they just weren't in my vocabulary they weren't around in my society um it was a catholic school that I was at so I don't know it just was never presented to me and I was 12 going on 13 and I'm going to name my first girlfriend anonymously because who knows they might be listening um But uh, we're going to name her Hannah. Hannah and I were best friends, and she she was a flirt, and she was really good at it. And she would hold my hand and say, watch this, and walk across the room and flirt with these boys and get their number and then come back 
and hold my hand again. And I just thought that's what friends did. And then she got a boyfriend and she said that she needed to practice making out. And so she asked if she could practice on me. And I was like, sure. But it didn't. Ooh, why, why not? It, it didn't occur to me. Do, right? <laughs> it didn't occur to me that that was not something you did with your friends. No, um, that is not something you typically do with your friends. No, and I I just didn't know, Aubrey. I, I really didn't. I had all of my firsts with her. So my first time, my first kiss. She was my first love, and I was crazy about her. Again, gender wasn't in my vocabulary. Like, I knew that there was, like, my parents, you know, there was male and female. There was couples like that around me. But the only gay couple I knew, they were older, probably in their early 50s to mid-50s. And one of the women spoke of her dead husband all the time. She was a widow. And I asked my mom one time, you know, why does Jan and Georgia call each other love? And my mom said, well, they're in love. And I looked over at her and I'm like, but they're both women. And she's like, well, yes, honey, you can be women and in love. And I, for some reason, I had concocted in my brain that you had to be a widower and then you could be with a woman. I don't know why. It... So were you out looking for your first husband to kill? Or <laughs> were you out looking for your first? No. You I... said, okay, we got to get this thing out the way. Got to get the husband <laughs> part out the way so I can move on to what I really want. Is that? I don't know. For some reason, it just didn't seem like an option to me. And... um. Hannah, who I was dating and madly in love with and um, doing all the things with, her father was a local pastor for one of the in, like um, American churches there. And he might have found out or something happened. I don't remember quite fully, but she disappeared from one day to the next and moved to Hawaii. Um, and I was heartbroken. Just without notice, just up and left. Up and left. And I was heartbroken. And oh, that my, is horrible. That is so tragic. Yeah, I was 13 going on 14. And my younger sister, um, bless her heart, I don't think she ever did this in a, in a mean way, came up to me. I have a very vivid memory of this, but I'm sitting on a bench at a basketball court. And she scooted up next to me. And she goes, why are you so weird? And I was like, I'm not weird. You're weird. And she was like, no, I mean, you like never talk about boys. And I was like, well, you don't, you always talk about boys. <laughs> and she was like, you're just moping around all the time because you were always in Hillary's face. God, it was like you were in love with her or something. And it didn't dawn on me that I was in love with Hillary or Hannah until my sister said that. And she suggested that I date boys because I was ruining her social life. And I felt bad. So she recommended a couple boys for me to date. And I started dating one. And it was really not exciting. And it was terrible. And I went down this very long, very painful road of dating very machista um, angry, controlling men for a very long time. Um, when I kissed them, nothing happened. 
uh, when I spoke about my opinions, they'd only they'd asked me to speak on unless I they asked me to only speak unless I had been spoken to. I wasn't allowed to add questions. I could never talk about religion. That was like a no no. I had to wear what they requested me to wear. It was a very controlling environment, and I didn't know that I had any other options. Um, so well, if I can just no keep keep going, keep going. I'll say what I want to say later. Keep going. Yeah, and I, again, I want to reiterate: I'm I'm living in this super conservative town in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the mountains in Mexico, where I I knew plenty of gay men. They were everywhere, but. There wasn't visibly out lesbians. And if there, if I did know lesbians, I didn't know that they existed. I didn't know that that was an option. And I have very like intense memories of my different ex-boyfriends calling me out on my gayness. So for example, I think it was Pancho. I might have been 16 or 17. Um, there was a... Um, team he was on the basketball team like the local basketball team for the city and the Puerto Rican team was touring around Mexico and they so happened to be stopping in my hometown it was a really big deal the whole town was there to go see the Puerto Rican team but their entry game was a female team so we scrounged up the few women basketball players on my team to play against their team and we got there early because my boyfriend Pancho was on the all-star team representing the city. It was like a big deal. And I had to go sit with all the other girlfriends and wear the special shirt. Like it was a big deal. And I saw the Puerto Rican team go out on the floor. And one of the women who was with them, she had a tattooed sleeves. And in Mexico, if you had tattoos, you were either in a gang or had gotten out of jail because you were in a gang. No one had tattoos in those days, much less women. So this was the first time I had ever seen a woman with tattoos and she was covered in tattoos and gorgeous. She had little short shorts and had a little rose tattoo hanging out from the side of her thigh. And I must have been totally checking her out with my mouth open that my, at the time, boyfriend, I saw him from across the basketball court beeline towards me and he grabbed me by the arm and he picks me up in a kind of violent way and he's like what the heck are you doing and I was like what he was like get over here pulled me away from everyone because it was like a big scene sat me down and he was like I knew it I knew it I knew it and I was like knew what and he was like everyone told me you were a mari macha and I was like a mari what I'd never even heard that word it wasn't till years later that I found out that that word meant dyke. But at that moment in time, as a young 16-year-old, I refu like profusely apologized. I refused to ever admit to being a marimacha or looking at women. And I promised him on a thousand Bibles that I have blinders on and never check anyone else out ever. Um, so fast forward into my mid-twenties, I was dating yet another super machista, kind of hardcore, violent, verbally abusive man, and I met my ex-husband, Nick. And uh, Nick was kind, 
and laughed a lot and he was really funny and he had his own house he could do his own laundry he could cook he lived on his own um he was like a a real man <laughs> not none of these like he Mexican was an adult men. yes these Mexican adult. men were like yeah. in their no games yes but Mexican men live in their mother's houses until they're like 40 and they have to move out um and it dawned on me that I could date a nicer man. Uh, the other thing about Nick is that he spoke a, enough Spanish that I could have bilingual conversation with him. He grew up part-time in San Miguel, so he understood my weird biculturalness at a level that no one else had ever understood before. I wasn't ever othered with him. Um, he didn't praise me for being white. Um, he didn't praise me for my Mexicanness either. I was just a person. And I started dating Nick after having my ex-boyfriend stalk us for three months. And gosh, three years later, he was down on one knee. And I was like, oh shit, I guess this is what people do. And I guess married. this is happening. Okay. All yeah. right. Um, so to answer your question <laughs> I don't know what the question was anymore um is how did I know that I <laughs> I'm was just, I'm, I'm too I'm too into your story I'm too into hearing everything <laughs> that happened this is so interesting well your question was how did I know or when did I know I was yes gay? and that's that was the question yes and really Aubrey I always knew but I always chucked my weirdness or my feelings of not understanding I or not feeling anything, or feeling different to being bicultural. And it wasn't mm -hmm. till later that I realized that that wasn't what was happening. The feeling I was having was I knew I wasn't straight and I didn't have a language for it. And I loved Nick and I still love him very much till this day. And I was had a wonderful relationship with him. I really don't wanna downplay the marriage that I had with him. And I really don't want to downplay the love that we had for each other. But I also had a really intense, hard journey coming out because of him with him. Um, and really, I do you go ahead. Well, do you think it was harder to come out because he was such a good guy? Do yes. you think that made it harder? Um, yes and no. It, it made it easier because he really promoted me being my most authentic self. And he really promoted mm. my most authentic sexual desires. And he really promoted um, being adventurous and being absolutely true to myself. So he made it safe and easier for me to come out of the closet in that sense but it made it all that much more difficult to come out to him because when I realized that I couldn't be a queer woman who's married to a man and it meant that we had to get a divorce and no longer be together, that's what was hard. Watching him fall onto his knees crying when I told him that I was gay and watching his heart break in front of me was probably the most difficult thing I ever did. It wasn't hard coming out oh to my, my parents. It wasn't hard coming out to my friends, but to Nick, 
I mean, it, it will haunt me forevermore watching that man just break down into, I mean, I, I, I can't even describe it. I just saw his heart collapse in front of me. And what broke my heart even more is after he was wailing and on the ground crying, he took a really long, deep breath and then looked up to me from the floor and said, oh my God, this must have been so hard for you. And then he said, if you ever need a sperm donor, please think of me. (laughs) So he still wants that connection. Wow. And I started crying because I was like, this is why I married you. Because you, even though I'm breaking your dreams of having a future with me and having children, you're still offering yourself up to me and loving me full-heartedly, even though it means the ending of this dream that he had. Because... He was ready to have kids in that point of our marriage. And that's when I knew that we couldn't be together anymore. That is, that's amazing. That's, it's so empowering for you, but there's so much sadness in it. Where are you at now in terms of, because we talked about your first love. Mm Mm-hmm. And the series of bad, crappy boyfriends and a wonderful ex-husband. Where are you at now in terms of relationships? Well, I do, before I jump into answering that question, I do want to talk about my coming out process with Nick because it really explains where I'm at today. You know, coming out married to a man was hard in the sense that I had ventured into a place of polyamory. I didn't know that word. I didn't know that polyamory existed. I was, like many people, thought polygamy and polyamory were the same thing. (laughs) I thought that too at first. When I first came out, I I thought the same thing. Yeah, so um, Nick and I, we had moved to Atlanta, Georgia to pursue our dreams of working in the film industry and to pursue having better incomes to have the lifestyle that we wanted. But one of the things that we were really excited about when we moved to Atlanta was we didn't know anyone. And I have to go back to, I'm from a very small town in Mexico. So it was really exciting to be in a place where the police officer down the street didn't know me or my parents and all of our business. And it was really nice to be in a place where I didn't know where to find things. It was like a new adventure. Um, And Nick wanted to open our marriage up because he thought it would be fun and exciting and we could explore other sexual adventures together. And he made me feel safe and good about it. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I know it's very controversial to do that in a marriage. Um, And I was having a hard time. Um, I didn't really like the idea of sleeping with other men. (laughs) In hindsight, it's because I was gay. (laughs) Um, But Nick was sleeping with other women and... um, other types of people and I think that was fine and we were practicing really good safe sex and I was um, 
getting ready to get off of birth or I was off birth control so we could get ready to have children and this was our like last hurrah I guess and I had heard of the term swingers and I assumed that that's what we were doing and one day Nick looked over to me and he said you haven't gone on dates with anyone or like gone and had like a one-night stand I was like well first of all I'm not a one-night stand kind of gal Second of all, like, ew, I don't really want to sleep with men. So he got kind of frustrated, I guess. And we were using Tinder, the dating app, to find these other partners. And um, he's like, give me your phone. And grabbed my phone, poked around on it, and threw my phone back at me. He's like, there, I think that will help. And I was like, what did you do? And he was like, change your preferences to women. I was like, you can do See, that? See, that was going to be my question, because oftentimes in polyamory, couples have rules. Mm-hmm. And did you all have any established rules about who you could or couldn't date? Oh, yeah. Gosh. We talked about all the rules. We had all the different um, setups and what was okay, what wasn't okay. And for some reason, dating women seemed a lot safer and easier for me. And, and, but however, what really happened is I realized that my body was responding tremendously well to women and no longer responding to men. And I had one of those aha moments because I was no longer on birth control. I just, you know, one of the side effects of birth control is low libido. And I just assumed that, oh, well, I just have low libido always because I'm on birth control and have been for, you know, 15 plus years. But then I was off of birth control. That wasn't the case at all. Not at all. Because all of a sudden my body was my body and I was not responding to my husband. I was only responding to the now girlfriend I had acquired through this adventure and I, I really didn't know what to do with my feelings. I still hadn't come out to myself and I stumbled upon polyamory because I couldn't fathom the idea of loving two people at once. I didn't know what that meant. I found a polyamory support group and through the conversations and the tools that polyamory culture. I don't even know if we want to call it a culture, but polyamory really helped me to have more self-awareness. The support group I was going to gave me great tools on how to have difficult conversations, um, open communication, being honest, and being honest with yourself as well as with your partner. And through this polyamorous adventure that I had fallen into with this other woman and my, at the time, husband, I realized that I wasn't living my most authentic self. And I was never pressured by the woman who I was dating at the time. She was a full-on lesbian, very masculine of center, had no interest in being a third or sleeping with Nick. She was fine with me being married to a man, and she was fine being my partner for the rest of her life um, and me still being married to Nick. Um, We had a lot of conversations about the three of us raising children, and... I had a a very vivid moment when I said, no, this is not, this is not who I want to be. And this is not where I want my life to continue to grow. And I didn't want to end up marrying that one woman. And 
I knew that I had to let go of the notion of being married to a man with the white picket fence and the children and the dog and it just it all came tumbling down from there how did you process that with a lot of yoga <laughs> um no i cried that's one way other people other people pick scotch other people pick therapy but <laughs> eat a lot of yoga no, I did all of the above. I did a lot of therapy. I did a lot of crying. I did a lot of yoga. Um, it was really difficult. And it was really difficult to um, let go of Nick. And it was really difficult for us to let go of each other. Um, and it was really beautiful to be sitting on this, I guess it, they call it a, a stoop, um, next to Piedmont Park and watching rainbow-colored beads flying across your face towards other people and rainbow colors all over the place and having that moment of knowing, oh, that sense of not feeling like I belong, I finally found it. I never felt like I belonged in Mexico. I never felt like I belonged in the States. I wasn't a pocha, I wasn't a Chicana, I wasn't a gringa, I wasn't a Mexican, I wasn't an American, I wasn't all American, I wasn't all white, I wasn't all brown. The whole time I always felt torn between all these different cultures, languages, and I never felt like I belonged. I never felt girly enough, I never felt tomboyish enough, and there I was sitting on this stoop watching people smiling and dancing in Atlanta Pride, and I went, this is it. This is me. This works for you. This works for you. Yeah. And then having to build up the guts to let Nick know that I wanted to eventually have a partner with a LGBTQ person and raise children and explore that more by myself was... Without him. Without him. Was devastating for everyone. Um, so I don't know what to say and and I I, I don't know what to say and that's bad when you're hosting a podcast (laughs) (laughs) it's just I think we've gotten so used to this idea that coming out is easy and emotions are easy and you just decide one day oh I'm a lesbian or, oh, I'm gay. Oh, I'm bisexual. And the reality is it's so hard and it's so complex and the emotions are so individualized. You can celebrate and be sad all at the same time, can't you? Well, and Aubrey, what was fascinating too was learning that I wasn't the only woman out there who had been married to a man and was coming out later in life. I thought I was alone in this. It was also fascinating learning that there was kids who are ages of 12 and 13 being like, I'm gay. And I was like, wow, I am so fascinated and impressed. I'm very fascinated by that because I didn't know anything when I was 12. Well, I don't know anything now. (laughs) My fiance today knew that they were gay and came out. I mean, they came out to her parents later, but... To answer your question, where I am today in my love life journey, I guess, is I'm going to 
be married um, to a lovely woman in December, hopefully, if Corona well, doesn't congratulations. destroy it. Um, but it was, I met so many other LGBTQ people with so many complex stories and hearing their journeys really healed me. Um, it made me feel less isolated and less alone. I then started finding uh, LGBTQ identifying people who were bicultural and biracial. I found things that I didn't realize had affected me in the past, like the Spanish language does not have they, them um, inclusive pronouns in our language. Um, learning about lesbianism in Mexico and in the US, uh, understanding you know, my dad being upset that I might not ever have kids and learning about LGBTQ parenting and what that looks like, even though my mom's a midwife um, and really reshaping not only my views and understanding of gender, uh, marriage, um, self-identification, and then also learning the different degrees of discrimination. I mean, everything about the LGBTQ world felt so me and so, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was just exactly what I was looking for. That sense of belonging, that sense of being unforgivably myself. And I, I'm so grateful and in awe of the people who I've dated in the past. Um, especially after I came out um, and divorced my husband, they all taught me so much. Most of the people who I dated had come out in, when they were eight or 12 and knew themselves so well. I have such an admiration for people who come out early in age, early in life, um, and ditto later in life, but it's, it's such a, everyone has baggage, right? And I find it really bonding um, listening to people's coming out stories, which is partly why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> you know, my mom always says perfect people are boring. I, she, I don't want to spend time with people who are everything's perfect and easy. And I've never had any struggle because it's not authentic. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is be authentic and be honest about how hard some of these things can be. And you said your parents are accepting, but your dad was worried about having grandchildren. Yeah. And then you've also mentioned a sister though. Yeah. So what's your family like? What's, what's going on with your family? So my parents are still married and um, very much in love. They still hold hands and go to date nights every Wednesday. Um, they're cheesy, cheesy. Um, my dad is... Aww definitely comes from like a Catholic conservative Mexican family outside of Michoacan. He's actually a um, government official for my hometown. Um, but I've never actually had the conversation with my father directly about me coming out. Um, I know that he's accepting through a conversation with my mom. I do realize that I might have to come out to my dad directly because <laughs> I never did. Uh, he has met my fiance. <laughs> I was going to ask that he knows that you're getting married, right? So yes, in fact, my fiance called okay. him to ask okay. for my hand in marriage in Spanish, and she does not speak Spanish. So I was very impressed with her 
valiant efforts of trying to do that in a different language. <laughs> oh, that is sweet. Um, so my dad, um, as far as I can tell, he's accepting. He's a very quiet man, so he doesn't ask a lot of questions. Um, but my mom is learning a lot about LGBTQ history and LGBTQ um, world. I didn't realize the extent of lack of knowledge um, that my mom had until I started having more conversations with her. Um, she doesn't ask me things, I just tell her things and then I can tell she's like, I have no idea what that means. So I, she's so open-minded, she's so welcoming and loving. Um, she's a mother to many, many people because she's a midwife and people just like swoon over her. They go, oh, Allison's your mother? Oh, and they get all swoony. <laughs> but she's also a healer. She's a naturopath and a homeopath. She's just like, like a cool, grungy mom. Um, and she's very knowledgeable. And my sisters, I think uh, my older sister didn't bat an eye. She was like, cool. And my younger sister, I think she had a harder time with it. I think she loved my ex-husband a lot. I think um, she's more conservative. Uh, no, I think I know she's more conservative and I think she had a really hard time with me coming out. And in fact, um, she said a couple things under her breath a couple times and uh, I think she's finally coming around. But- uh, It can be hard on siblings. I, I know from experience, it can be very hard on siblings. Well, you know, uh, Families have their own coming out process, and so do parents, um, especially if they come out later in life. Um, or not not especially. I think everyone has their own coming out process. Like, I'm now a parent of a gay person. Uh, you know, it's a big deal. It does change the conversation a bit. It does. It, it does. The, it changes the conversation you have with them. It it changes those conversations that you don't know about that they have with their friends and each other and family members. So it does change the conversation quite a bit. And you're better than me. Um, I have not had many conversations with my family after coming out. I kind of don't talk about it. <laughs> so you're better than me. You talk about it with them. I think I talk about it more than they would want me to, to be honest, but I'm always really weirded out. Like, why don't you guys have questions? Do you guys want to know anything? Here's an open book. Uh, my fiance's family is like that. They um, don't ask anything. They're very hush-hush about it. And so one time I did bring it up at the dinner table. I was like, hey, now that you guys all know, because not her, her whole family did not know she was gay until she proposed to me there that's a whole different story um but I was sitting there I was like now that you guys know that we are a couple and in love do you guys have any questions about the wedding like I don't know are you guys curious to know what to call her because she's not a bride <laughs> or do you have questions on things that would normally be traditional at southern weddings like bridal portraits or the garter, which we're not doing, and here's why. But they all kind of looked at me in that panic face, like, oh no, here she goes. <laughs> now we're talking about this and we didn't th we didn't think we would talk about it, so it can be uncomfortable, which is part of why we're doing this podcast. 
Well, I also think to that have sometimes, real conversations with people. Yeah, and I think sometimes people don't know what to ask when they don't know more information, or they don't want to be insulting, or they don't want to offend anyone. So sometimes I just offer up information because I also think that a lot of homophobia um, comes from not knowing or not understanding. And it breaks my heart when people say, well, you know, India and that lifestyle she chose. And I want to smack them in the face and be like, excuse me, I did not choose this lifestyle. Um, and I know, I'm, but I think that's a part of the Southern culture, though. Part of the Southern culture is not having those difficult conversations if you can avoid them. If you can talk around them or talk in private without the person, I think part of Southern culture is avoiding that talk. Yes. Because it is uncomfortable and it goes against Southern sensibilities. Yes, it's like they won't talk about money either. You don't talk about your private life or money, and we much less don't talk about you being gay. And it's almost like they have to whisper it. (laughs) And this is kind of a pop culture tangent. I'm rediscovering the show called Sweet Magnolia or Magnolia. It was on the CW a few years ago. Yeah, Sweet Magnolia. Heart, no, no, Heart of Dixie. Sorry, Heart oh. of Dixie. Uh-huh. Sweet Magnolias is the new one, <laughs> but Heart of Dixie. And I'm watching this with my family, and I go, where are the gay people in this town? <laughs> I think there's one, and they're not saying it. Oh, he's the blogger. He's the gay one, but they're not going to use the word. And I think there's still a lot of that in Southern culture. Well, I even think that, um, and that could be a whole different podcast, Aubrey, but seeing... No, I'd have to go back and keep watching. I stopped watching the show. I got bored. <laughs> so well, I stopped watching it. Well, I was going to say, like, uh, seeing gay representation in pop culture today and on TV is such a big deal. And I still cheer when I see lesbians or gay people or trans people i'm the dork in the back of the movie theater going yeah he's gay um it brings me so much joy and i never noticed how much of a lack there is of lgbtq representation and in fact i feel like i was talking to you about this previously but there is soap operas in mexico that now have lesbian subplot stories in 2019 they didn't exist prior to that so i also sometimes i get the question well how could you not know that you were gay when you lived in mexico or when you were married and i was like excuse me you look around mexico and you don't see a single gay woman anywhere why because they might get shot or stabbed to death, or raped, or all of the above. So lesbianism in Mexico is still very hidden, even today. Um, Gay men are a little bit more accepted in our culture. Um, I almost feel like the gay hairdresser is like, okay. Um, Transvestites are also, or the term transvestites is used a lot in Mexico, and the Mexicans call themselves 
like they bring up that word a lot and they bring up that culture a lot. And I feel like Mexico is like 20 or 30 years behind the U.S. Because um, I know that there's trans people in Mexico. I know that there is non-binary folk in Mexico. I know that there's bi people, gay women, gay men. But the language and the words are still very new to our society. So sometimes I want to be like, excuse me, no, I didn't know because I wasn't exposed. I Maybe I would have come out earlier if I knew other lesbian women. Sometimes you can't know if you aren't exposed, if you don't have the words, if you haven't seen it. Sometimes that's just a thing you keep locked up. And I and I feel like I I was so grateful for Nick. It's really hard to have these conversations even today because I do find myself listening to women who are married to men and complaining about things and just kind of having those, wow, I really don't relate to that and I don't think I ever did, but I don't want to vocalize it a whole lot because I don't want to insult Nick and I don't want to insult his manhood or his um, love that he had for me or the marriage that we had for that matter but it was so not authentically me even now when I'm planning a wedding for the second time there's a lot of guilt and fear and I have a lot of um like repressed shyness about being married again and it's not my first wedding you know I I don't openly talk about it a lot because there's a lot of stigma around being a divorced woman getting married for a second time at my age um that it's really difficult to have these conversations with people who haven't been married to men and then coming out without feeling judged. But mostly it's probably just me being insecure. <laughs> or a little of both. Yeah. It could be a little of both. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. But that's why I think um, it's important to have difficult conversations. And that's partly why I wanted to do this podcast as I was hoping to have more difficult conversations and understand how um, the South really was so embracing and loving and amazing. And the queer culture that I encountered in Atlanta was huge and welcoming and open. And I will forever hold that place as another hometown for me because it's where I came out to my authentic self and being my true self that I, I hold it very dearly to my heart. Well, that is awesome. That is awesome. So I think maybe switching gears a little bit away from the idea of a coming out story, just looking at queer culture, what, are there any aspects of it that you find you maybe still don't understand? But like we talked like, and we've talked previously how I kind of get the concept of drag culture, although I still think I need someone to walk me through it a little bit. Are there any aspects like that where you want to learn more about? Uh, everything. <laughs> 
Well, that can't be the answer. I know. Um, I love learning about LGBTQ culture. I want to learn more about drag culture. I feel like I'm very little versed in it. I want to learn more about um, LGBTQ culture in Mexico. I want to understand more slang words. I want to understand the origins of them. I want to understand more policy and laws around LGBTQ people or the lack thereof. Um, I really want to learn more about all of the above. I mean, there's so many areas. Like, I also know that there's people who identify with two spirits. I don't know enough about that identification, and I'd love to understand more about it. Um, I also think bi culture is erased a lot, and I think... Um, there's a lot of biphobia in the LGBTQ community, and I want to understand why. And I, I also think there's so many avenues within all of these cultures. Like, people love talking about RuPaul drag race and drag queens, but there's a whole other subculture of drag kings that no one talks about. Um, massive culture of drag kings. And then there's a whole subculture of, like, what I had mentioned to you before, couples who have a partner that transitions. Everyone mm -hmm. focuses on the person who's transitioning, which I think is important, and those stories need to be told, but what about the partner? So, I don't know. I also think that there's new things in our culture that I'm not aware of that I'd love to learn more about. Like, I just found something called cottage core, and I'm like, eh, what is this? What is cottage core? It's on TikTok and Oh well see we've talked about that. I'm too old for TikTok. I don't <laughs> know that one. I'm too I'm almost forty. I've missed TikTok. Well completely. Apparently cottage core <laughs> existed before TikTok and we'll have to look up the official definition. But All it's right, well, huge in the lesbian that, culture, and I feel like I need to interview someone about this because I don't even know if my definition is appropriate. That's an episode. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm adding it to the list. That is an episode. I love it. <laughs> um, All right. Go ahead. No, I think the last thing I was going to say is I would love to learn more about trans culture. Um, because I'm not trans and neither is my partner, I feel like I've only scratched the surface. And I'm a big advocate on trans rights and using pronouns and learning about their stories. But I also feel like there's a lot of um, easy ways that people can offend or, um, I don't know, step on trans people's toes. And I don't know if I know all of the do's and don'ts. So I would love to be better educated in it, more so than I am today. Um, I think I'm more aware of things than the average person, but I know that there's so much to learn. Um, and that's the beauty of being human, is always learning. Great. Well, thank you. This has been fun. So much information, I like Aubrey. This. this is other. <laughs> there's a lot about your story to process, and I feel like I'm going to be thinking of it for days and thinking of questions I should have asked you. <laughs> but your story is just so beautiful, Thank and you. it's so real. 
and I'm excited to be working with you on this project and I cannot wait to see where we take it. Likewise, because I think we have lots of topics and subtopics that we can dive into easily. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, India. And I think that's going to be all for now. That is all for today, y'all. Aubrey, my co-host, and I would love it if you follow us on social media, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a review and catch you on the next episode of Southern Queries. Some credits. Production. Your hosts, India and Aubrey. Audio mixing by Allison Holly. Story research, Aubrey Calvin. Editing, India Bastia. queries.
or record, mm-hmm. <laughs> play, <laughs> play. <laughs> we have okay. We we have to do it in order. We have to record. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 